Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we're beginning a new series. It's actually a selection of messages from Dr. John on the church called Lessons for the Church. So let's join Dr. Newfeld now. Hey, John. Hey, good to be with you, Ben. John, this week we begin a five-message series where we look back on some of your teaching regarding the church. First, let me say the church is highly esteemed by Back to the Bible Canada. In fact, we make a practice of reminding people of the need for their personal commitment to the local church first and foremost. So I think it's important to say because we would never place this ministry above the church. Exactly, because if we did, Ben, then we would be in opposition to Christ, who said he'd come to build his church. He didn't say he'd come to build a radio ministry. He said he came to build his church. We respect what Christ has said, and we honor the church. So, John, let me ask you two questions. One, given what we've all experienced this past year and a half or more, what do you see as the greatest challenge for the church and how we should respond as God's people? Well, Ben, so many churches uh, have been meeting online, and as they've been meeting online, you know, people go online and they say, wow, you know, I could look at another service somewhere else, and pretty soon, you know, people are perusing all the different services that are going on all throughout North America, perhaps beyond that, even I don't know. But when they do that, Ben, I, I think we get less connected to our local church. So when the doors open again, the great challenge will be to bring God's people home. It's time for God's people to get back together, to meet with one another, and to recognize how important the church actually is. Thanks, John. Let me ask you a second question. What do you see as most precious about the church? Well, I think the most precious thing that we can say is the church was instituted by Christ, and He is the head of the church today. I mean, you know, after that, uh, everything else, you know, just takes upon itself a new meaning. See the church as plan A in God's agenda. Thanks so much, John. Now let's begin our series today, Lessons for the Church, with a message entitled, The Church is Born. So turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, verses 41 to 47, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Have you ever watched one of those shows that begins with the words, this program may contain graphic images and is not suitable for a younger audience? Now, that program might be a documentary about war or a natural disaster that shows the sufferings of human beings. And if you're going to watch that, well, you should be prepared. I feel like giving one of those warnings today. This program may contain images of a megachurch, and it is not suitable for those who believe that churches should all remain small. But I really don't think this is about the size of the church. I I want to describe the very first Christian church and what it was like to have been a part of that and how the church was structured and what they did and, very importantly, what that says to us and to our churches today. So let me say it at the outset. There was never a Jesus movement without a church. No one ever in the first century ever thought of themselves as a follower of Jesus without being an active part of the local church. The church was the body of Christ, or the practical expression of what it meant to follow Jesus. But did the first Christian church look like, well, a church today? How did the first Christian church function, and what can we take from that? Uh, We have noticed a progression in our study of Acts. After the resurrection of Jesus for a period of 40 days, Jesus met with the disciples or his apostles, his messengers, and he reviewed his message of the kingdom of God. He, He made sure that they were all on the same page. 
Then he gave them their final instructions. They were to make disciples of the nations. They wouldn't know when Jesus would come and establish his physical kingdom, but they were to take the good news from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, and then to every people group on the face of the earth. However, before they got going, they were not to leave Jerusalem until they had received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then 10 days after Jesus was taken to heaven, the Holy Spirit came and filled the 120 who had joined the apostles. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. That day on the Jewish feast of Pentecost, Peter had preached the first ever Christian sermon. And in consequence, 3,000 people repented of their sins. They're baptized in water. And then they also, along with the 120, received the Holy Spirit. It would seem that the first part of Jesus' command was well underway. I mean, after the Holy Spirit had come, they were to take the gospel to Jerusalem. But once the gospel had been preached and 3,000 responded, now is not the time to move on to the towns of Judea. You can't simply win 3,000 to Christ, baptize them, and then suddenly leave town. Everywhere men and women are one to Christ, you have to begin a local assembly of followers of Jesus. You can't evangelize without a church. And what did the local assembly of followers of Jesus actually do? I mean, how did they conduct their activities? Well, in the last section of Acts chapter 2, we have, I would argue, the model for every Christian church. First, we're going to see a fourfold picture of what the Christian church did, and then we're going to see a fourfold result that came from that activity. But before we go any further, let's read today's text. I'm reading Acts 2, 42 to 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Well, please remember that Peter has just preached, and in consequence, 3,000 people believe and are baptized. That's the drama that now leaves us with those having been baptized by the Spirit, now growing from 120 to 3,000 in one day. What do you do with 3,000 newly born-again Christ followers? Well, let's look at the four central activities. We're going to examine each one of them very closely and see how we can apply these items to our churches today, regardless of the size or where they're located. But I do notice, first of all, that Luke uses a phrase, they devoted themselves. So a devotion is the same as a dedication, or it's a a commitment that supersedes all other commitments. But it also means that the 3,000 committed themselves to these four things with intense effort. It was was an all-consuming activity. And that's the thing about the church. Wherever the church is but one of our activities rather than a devotion, it stops being meaningful. Okay, let's look at what they devoted themselves to. Remember, there are four things. The first of the four is the apostles' teaching. And we've got to assume that all 12 apostles formed the teaching core of the church. Remember, of course, that Jesus has chosen them. He's personally taught them. And he had promised that when the Holy Spirit came, they would be able to recall all that he had taught, all that he had done, and the meaning of it all, and the implications for the lives of all people without error in complete accuracy. 
Now, of course, who else would be teaching but the 12? But we do notice that as the church expands in the future, it's going to expand to far more than 12 locations. So it's not possible in the future to have all the apostles do all the teaching. However, every teacher who is appointed needed to be submissive to the apostolic message and needed to restrict themselves not to go beyond that message. You know, it's fascinating to learn that in the first 500 years of the church, almost all teaching was expositional. That is, teachers restricted themselves to a verse-by-verse explanation of the scripture, which in the case of the New Testament is the written teaching of the apostles. You know, that's to say if a teacher is faithful, he's going to restrict himself to the actual message of the apostles, trying as best as he can to be faithful to that message, making the teaching feel like it was as if the apostles themselves were there. Now, the second activity of the church is that they devoted themselves to the fellowship. And you have to assume that this means that the church was in close relationship or in close communion with each other. They didn't just attend the teaching messages. They were in relationship. They were encouraging one another on. They're watching over their common life of faithfulness. You know, every act of church has to have that as an essential ingredient. Fellowship doesn't mean just coffee after the service. It means sharing a common life, which includes a common passion for the Lord's mission and engaging with one another so that that might be accomplished. You know, the third activity is the breaking of bread. And I have to admit that I can't be definitive on this matter. I mean, breaking of bread can simply refer to having a meal in someone's home. And if that's all that's meant here, it would mean that the fellowship has become intimate in which, you know, believers regularly practice hospitality with one another. But given that it's only been a short while earlier when Jesus has shared the first Passover together with his disciples, in, in which he pronounced, this cup is my blood, this bread is my body, it's quite likely that Luke's referring to the sharing of the Lord's table. Indeed, in the Greek, there's a definite article in front of bread. That is, they were breaking the bread. You know, in our day, there's a great deal of variance around the practice of the observance of the Lord's table. I know that some churches practice it every time they meet together. That is, they wouldn't think of teaching the apostolic doctrine of Jesus unless they were at the same time also sharing of communion. Well, there are other churches that practice it monthly, and there are still others that practice it only once a quarter. And in truth, Jesus didn't tell us how often we should share the Lord's table. He simply said, as often as you do it. But the early church does show us that there was a devotion to the Lord's table. And, well, I I find it sad how often the practice of the Lord's table in our day either gets neglected or it gets tacked on to the end rather than something that we eagerly await as a central aspect of our worship together. I, I think we need to rethink our devotion to this essential aspect of the life of God's people. Now, finally, the text also says they devoted themselves to prayer. And I'm assuming that the prayer was an essential function of their regular teaching session. See, prayer encompasses every form of worship, you know, of the confession of sins. It encompasses the bringing of requests to God, to simply seeking a greater nearness of God's presence. Prayer has to be a central priority to our worship. But that's it, or that's the essential center of the church's life. And this is still the central feature of the church's life today. 
You know, teaching reminds us that we must be constantly instructed or we're going to forget and fall away. Fellowship reminds us that the Christian faith isn't a spectator sport. Breaking of bread reminds us that the center of the gospel is Christ's atoning sacrifice on our behalf. And prayer reminds us that we can't go forward on our own power. We're always dependent on God's power. This month, ask for your free copy of Lessons for the Church on CD for free. Back to the Bible Canada exists to disciple God's people through Bible teaching that strengthens the church. So love your church. It's God's tool for advancing the gospel. Luke not only describes the essential middle or the four central aspects of the church's life, he also tells us of the consequences of the kind of life that they enjoy. He points out four results. First says Luke, awe came upon every soul. I mean, one of the reasons for the awe is, said in the text, the apostles were performing many signs and wonders. And I have no doubt he's, he's probably referring to maybe the healing of the lame beggar in chapter 3. No doubt the apostles were praying for the sick and, and God was healing them. Again, if we seek to make application to our day, we have to acknowledge that, that the apostles, while they did have a special anointing on their lives, in which they were given a unique power to repeat the miracles of Jesus. I know there's a debate among some Christians as to whether the healings that we read about in Acts are intended to be repeated in our day. And so let me speak into that. No matter how you understand this passage, it is clear that the abundance of miracles that we read about in Acts, well, they're just simply not happening today. Indeed, after the apostles, the church has never had the same kinds of signs and wonders performed with that kind of abundance. But that's not to say that there are no miracles among us. I mean, my understanding of James 5 is that church leaders are called upon to anoint the sick and to pray for their healing. So for my part, I have on several occasions have seen some rather outstanding miracles. I mean, one of the ones that still remains so close to my heart is when after praying for a man who had gone blind, God instantly and miraculously gave him back his sight. Look, I hold no agreement with people who claim that the only thing that holds anyone back from physical healing is, you know, their lack of faith. I mean, that kind of theology makes God into a robot who has to respond to the right kind of faith. But if the church is truly to be a praying church, it seems to me that we will find that God does hear our prayers and he answers them as well. And that does fill us with awe because the living God is among us. And, and that's the reason for the awe that swept over the early church. You know, in many of my years of pastoral ministry, I remember holding an annual New Year's Eve service in which we would open up the mics, which we would set out on the floor, and people would get up and share what God had done for them in the past year. And I was often left speechless at the divine encounters that were shared by the congregation. Since God is a living God, we expect there to be an evidence of his presence. There ought to be an air of expectation in which we never know when it is that we might round the next corner and encounter the living God. He is indeed among us, and we are filled with awe. The second consequence of their devotion to the central elements of their common life is that they enjoyed the common life. 
You know, again, look at verses 44 to 45. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, this passage has led some to imagine that an essential part of the Christian life is foregoing any private possessions and then living communally. So, you know, no more private houses or private bank accounts or private cars. And if Luke had been trying to tell us that that was an essential feature of authentic Christian living, well then, you would have expected that he would have been describing this. But later on, you know, when Paul's setting up a church in every city, that doesn't happen. Never again do we read about a church which advocates the communal ownership of property. Indeed, in 1 Timothy 6, Paul warns against those who are getting rich and seeing that as the goal in their lives And so he advocates that the rich be generous and willing to share. If there had been communal property, there would have been no command for any of the rich. No one would have been rich. And so clearly, in the rest of the New Testament, we find no command to live communally. And while if that's the case, we have to wonder what's going on in the church in Jerusalem, don't we? I mean, why does the first ever Christian church practice something that's not practiced by the churches after that? Well, I think the answer is found in the context of of what Luke is describing for us in Acts. Remember that the Holy Spirit first fell on the first followers of Jesus on the day of Pentecost. That, of course, resulted in the conversion of 3,000 in one day. They also received the Holy Spirit. And then we have to imagine that a great many more were being saved. But Luke says all of that happened on the advent of the celebration of the Jewish Feast of Weeks. This was one of the three pilgrimage festivals in which all the Jews from the surrounding nations were coming to celebrate. So we remember that Luke has described for us 15 different nations who had people that came. Well, now that the fulfillment of the prophets had just come about and the beginning of the age of the Messiah was upon them, with the groundwork there of the teaching of the apostles, they were on ground zero of God's new work. While we have to imagine no one was going home, They wanted to stay. They wanted to be a part of God's great saga for the world. They're incapable of starting churches at home. That would come much later. So now they stay, but where do they stay? So please understand that there's no command to live communally. Later on, when we come to the sin of Ananias and Sapphira, Peter tells them that they were under no obligation to sell any property at all. The matter was a matter for personal conscience. It was done voluntarily. The holding of all things in common simply meant that those who lived in Jerusalem, those very believers were willing to sell personal possessions so that those from the other nations could remain in Jerusalem and give impetus to the great outpouring of the Messianic age. God's people would make enormous sacrifices so that the gospel witness would not be diminished. That's what's going on. So that's the second result in consequence of the activity of the church. It's not that they decided to live communally. It's that they decided that it was no imposition at all to make sacrifices both for one another and for the advancement of the gospel. Now, Luke mentions a third consequence. He says that they met in the temple daily. Later on, we're going to find out that there's an area within the temple. It's called Solomon's Portico, where believers in Jesus were given a place to meet. And that place would have been quite large, easily able to accommodate 3,000 and beyond. But, but right here, Luke's attention is not on where they met in the temple, but rather he's talking about how frequently they met. 
It was daily. They never wanted to let a day go by where they were not subject to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayer. And so Luke also says that they were breaking bread in their homes. Now, if I understood the breaking of bread correctly, we have to assume that they met at home for a a home study where they also shared the Lord's table. You know, healthy churches do share a similar formula. Many of us have buildings where the entire church meets, but we also have homes where we conduct Bible studies and fellowship and maybe other ministry goes on there as well. Well, the fourth outcome is really a wonderful one. It's found in verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's a a wonderful outcome. They're God-directed, but their God-directed focus does speak into the hearts of others who live in Jerusalem. Rather than hating the newly formed church, I mean, people's hearts in the wider Jerusalem are being warmed by the authenticity that they find in believers. You know, the matter of daily salvations is a matter to really consider. I suspect that almost all of you who are listening to my voice right now have never witnessed that happen. I myself have seen weekly salvations go on for a period of 15 years, and I'm still to this day staggered by that thought. That's because the church I was serving was reaching out to new immigrants in Canada from people groups who were highly receptive to the gospel. I'm also aware that when Luke records this, he's merely telling us what happened. He didn't intend to say that authentic churches are supposed to see that rate of conversions. That's not it. But Luke was telling us that the community around the first ever church were so impressed by the transformation of what happened, both in the individual lives of believers and in the way in which they communally lived. They had given up their private rights, and rather, they had committed themselves in relationship to faithfulness to God and in love to one another. And it doesn't matter where you live. Wherever you find that, that's attractive. It's what people want, and when they see it, they're attracted to it. And there's something else here. Authentic churches are also effective churches who are attractive to non-believers. You know, effective churches are not content to simply form a holy huddle and have no concern for outsiders and for the lost, who also are the broken and the hurting. See, the gospel of Jesus and the church of Jesus is intended for outreach. It's intended for reaching the lost. That's the challenge. If you care about Jesus and if you care about being a faithful church, you're also going to care about the lost. And you'll pray for the lost. You'll connect with the lost. You'll seek to win the lost. After all, the Holy Spirit came to make you a faithful witness to the world. Thanks for your message today, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Lessons for the Church, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Bible teaching you can trust. We're so grateful for all those who so graciously support this Bible teaching ministry. Your prayers, gifts, encouragement make this ministry possible. Please make sure to check out all the resources available for you to access at any time and at no cost. Visit backtothebible.ca, discover a library of audio and video Bible teaching programs. Use the medium of your convenience online podcast, mobile app, even the Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel. The goal? to offer Bible teaching you can trust and grow God's people for service. For more information or to support this Bible teaching ministry, 
call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.